I have the privilege of reading this great psalm for us today. Just give you a second to find Psalm 139 in your Bibles, or if you're reading from home. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is God's word. Well, it's great to be back. It's always a joy for me to be able to preach uh, here at St. Matt's Manly, uh, online or face-to-face. And uh, we've all journeyed through this weird year, and I think we might have hoped January the 1st might have magically changed everything, but <laughs> life goes on, doesn't it? We did have a conspiracy theory going around in the western suburbs that when the lockdown came for the northern beaches, that it was a conspiracy to keep Manly supporters out of the western suburbs, but I never went for that one. <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, you're such a good God, Lord. We know that when our view of you is small, then our problems are big. But when our understanding of God is big as it ought to be, as as our view ought to be, then our struggles shrink, which is exactly where they need to be, in your hands. So as we 
explore this psalm that opens up such a vista of vastness of who you are. Let it speak to our souls, whether we're inside the circle of faith or outside. Give us soft hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me quote Ray Galea. It's a deep hunger of the human psyche that craves to be understood. There you go. It's a quote from me. I do it at church sometimes. I quote myself because no one else does. It's a deep hunger of of the human psyche that craves to be understood. There was a guy at church. He's now gone to be with the Lord. He, He said one day, he said, Ray, if I could find a world where I understood a people who understood me, then I'd be happy. And, and I thought, that, that, that's fairly insightful. It's really the principle that undergirds self-help groups, whether it's AA or Gamblers Anonymous, where you share your story in the presence of other image bearers who've walked where you've walked and struggled where you've struggled, and you feel that they get you. It's very therapeutic. Uh, some of you may have had the experience where you've gone to a paid counsellor psychologist, or perhaps you've had a particularly unique, thoughtful friend who was not only a good listener but could reflect back what you were saying, and you said, yeah, that's exactly how I feel. In fact, by the way, it almost how often you hear that probably is a clue of how good a listener you are, but that's another story. I think of the joy of the Samaritan woman. Remember her, John 4? I think she'd been with five guys. She was now with number six. And she met Jesus, who split open her life, and she said to her village, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, normally that would be scary, but for her it was absolutely thrilling. I think she finally met the man of her dreams and he just happened to be the Messiah. What I'm saying is, friends, we were built to be known, male and female, young and old. So let's go to the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. I'm going to read large chunks of this magnificent psalm. You may actually want to close your eyes and let it wash over your soul as I read it. Verses 1 to 6. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. You, You notice the verbs there? They're, they're the doing words, remember, Grandma? Um, God searches, perceives, is familiar with, God knows. All activity is under his watch. Whether I sit or stand, whether I'm far or near, whether I'm going out at 7 o'clock at night or coming home at 1 o'clock in the morning, God knows, or all our ways are known to him. God knows what you're going to say even before you say it. I know some of the stuff that leaves our mouths surprise us, but they don't surprise God. They may shock him, but they don't surprise him. He knew the text of this sermon before the creation of the world. Verse 4. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. So, what you say, what you think, what you do, none of it is off limits to God. Fancy word is omniscient, all-knowing. That's a characteristic unique to God alone. Not the government. Don't have to be afraid. Not Satan. Don't be intimidated. God alone is all-knowing. It's impressive. Just the the concept of omniscience is impressive. Uh, I once went to a 21st, which now that I'm 60, obviously was a long time ago, and uh, there were these two teenagers who claimed to be able to read each other's minds. We knew it was a trick, but we couldn't crack the code. Now, they're... Their omniscience was limited to 
they need to be facing each other and they could only do it with numbers one to 10, so it's fairly limited. But I tell you, we couldn't crack the code. No matter how we communicated to the number to one of them, the other one worked out what it was. It was thrilling in its own superficial way. And that was a trick. We're dealing with a God who actually does know every precious thought that you've ever had. He knows your thoughts like they were his own. Yet we still think that if I close the door, if I drop my voice, if I bend the truth, I can somehow shut God out. So let's learn once and for all, yet again, he is inescapable. And that's why when we undress someone in our minds other than our spouse, or when we curse someone online in our hearts to their face, well, it's all being recorded. God is over all of it. Nothing is off the record with God. Now, King David knew that better than anyone who wrote this psalm. I mean, he slept with his bodyguard's wife, then he murdered his bodyguard, right? Uh, a, year, a year takes place probably when you allow for the pregnancy and the birth of the child, subsequent to that. Probably about a year takes place when the prophet Nathan comes along and exposes him and says, David, you are the man. And David thought he'd kept it hidden. But of course it wasn't. Now, Dave, how did Nathan know? It wasn't, he was, it wasn't like Nathan was perving through the lattice windows. It was because God had revealed it. The God who watched the whole sordid story play itself out. Because what is hidden now will sooner or later be revealed. And if not in this age, certainly on the day of the Lord when he comes. And in a nutshell, David is understanding afresh that God is inescapable. And he is in awe of that. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I can't comprehend the incomprehensibility of God and his omniscience. This awesome God with this endless capacity. Think of the effort it takes just to know one person. I mean, it's exhausting. And God is intimately involved with every image bearer that makes up the seven, what, billion people that walk the face of the earth. That's a lot of people. That's why you don't have to timetable your prayers. Because God is not overloaded with the requests that people put before him. Uh, And this psalm is a piece in the puzzle of understanding why the day of the Lord will be a just judgment. Because he's got all the information at hand. You know, every week, judges and juries are making magistrates, are making calls whether someone is innocent or guilty. And, uh, you know, they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. Why? Because in the end, the highest bar they can appeal to is beyond reasonable doubt. Because there's always some measure of doubt, because they don't have access to all the information. They can't factor it in. They're not there. They can't process all the perspectives. Not so with God. He has all the information. You can be assured on that last day, God's judgments are just and true. God, who's all-knowing, is everywhere. He's omnipresent. You can't escape him. Look at verses 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. 
If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Ah, so there is no God-forsaken place. You might have thought it was Rudy Hill, but no, I guarantee he's there too. Which means you need never feel alone. You know, the ancient world had ancient tribal gods that were always locally defined. Not the God of the Bible. He's the creator of heaven and earth and he is everywhere. There is no place where God is not. And you know, God, uh, David tries to imagine a place where God isn't uh, and he can't do it. If I rise to the heavens, you are there. That is the solar systems, the skies, the solar system, you are there. If I stand on top of Mount Everest, you're there. If I sink to the belly of the earth, the bottom of the sea, say the Mindanao Trench, one of the deepest parts of the earth, you are there. If I move to the far side of the sea, which for an Israelite was like the back of Burke, you are there. And darkness, well, darkness that can hide me from you and you from me is a meaningless category for God. Look at verse 12. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. I've always wanted to get those military binoculars that turn night into day. They're so cool. Well, kind of like God's got perpetual military binoculars, you know. It's always light. Nothing gets switched off. You know, we we operate on the private-public distinction. Uh, We're very jealous about guarding our privacy, not wanting too many people, and understandably, because we know people who abuse the information that they have access to. But you've got to understand, that, uh, that too is a meaningless distinction when it comes to God. There is no private-public distinction. It's all public. Everything about you. And again, the thrust of this psalm is actually, the, that's not to scare you, that's actually to comfort you. And you know the feeling. Perhaps you're all alone in bed with tears in your eyes. Or you're all alone in bed sleeping next to someone who doesn't know you or doesn't want to know you with a thousand thoughts of being unloved running through your mind and each one as painful as the next and God says they might know you but I do you matter to me I get you I'm with you you're never alone it's a beautiful truth that and since Jesus rose with a human body is in now our human high priest who is permanently sided with us humans when you pray to Jesus you've got to understand you're praying to someone who gets you even from another angle that is he knows every one of your wounds like they were his own he knows the struggles of being human because he's walked in our footsteps so much so that he feels what we feel in real time that kind of adds another dimension to the omniscience of God who's become flesh And it also means that God knows every one of your good works done in response to the salvation of God. Not to earn salvation, of course, they're dead works. But the good works that God has set us free to do. Everyone will be remembered, rewarded, and will rebound to the glory of God. Because he's seen, that's why you don't have to, that's why we can play to an audience of one. That's why we can do our acts of righteousness just for God's sake. And not have to worry about manipulating others to get their approval. Because the one who matters knows, sees all. This passage reminds me of Jonah, who tried to create distance between him and God. God sends him to Nineveh, of course the arch enemy for an an Israelite, 
uh, the Assyrians were the arch enemy. And so what does he do? He books a P&O cruise and heads for Spain. And the God provides the fish and then ultimately evolves him up back on the coast so that he can do what God wanted him to do. You can't escape God. Knows everything, is everywhere. Actually knew you when you're in the womb. Verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Oh, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. So the God who knows all and is everywhere, isn't it amazing, knew you in the most intimate of places as an embryo, a little fetus in your mummy's womb. The God who formed the dry earth with his hands, fashioned almost the image of knitting you together, like my wife used to knit jumpers in the womb. Now, yeah, we know the scientific explanations. It's not an anti-scientific statement. Remember, science's job is to give you natural explanations for the natural world. That's its job. That's the limit of its job, but that's its job. Theology gives you the ultimate answers. That's the ultimate answer. It was God who knitted you in your mother's womb. And, and it's kind of very important truth because whether you're the result of a one-night drunken one-night stand or whether you're the result of Christian parents who prayerfully long for you to come over three years, you matter to God. Why? Because you were planned. It's such an important truth. Regardless of the nature of your conception, even if that conception took place as a result of evil, from God's point of view, in spite of the evil, he purposely brought you about. I don't know how many times I've heard people say how wounded they get when their parents talk about how they were in an accident. You know, like they came 10 years later. In fact, I was talking to some folk from the first service and when they were in Africa, uh, one of the, you know, the, the children are named uh, in light of events that take place and the child wasn't planned. So they named the child Mistake. <laughs> and that was its name. Ah, <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, imagine, imagine carrying that one the rest of your life. Wow, as if I didn't already know. <laughs> but the idea is there are no mistakes from God's point of view. Now remember, that doesn't mean that the context wasn't evil and seriously evil. But you, that's what we do, don't we? We distinguish the two realities and are able to say, Isn't that amazing, that every one of us was planned. When, when we were at our most fragile, when we were one of 30 possible names, our wonderful God purposely knew us, fashioned us in the womb. We matter. Verse 14, what do I, and again it inspires praise from King David. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. The craftsmanship of the human body leaves the Rolls Royce for dead. And that's one nice piece of machinery, let me tell you. I mean, when was the last time you looked in the mirror and congratulated God for his craftsmanship? Seriously, not because you're attractive, it's irrelevant. Because of the wonder of the human body. If you ever want to get an insight, just read Bill Bryson's book on the body. It's just so fascinating. It's majestic. And it points to the majesty of our creator, fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed body. 
all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And now that's saying something, something different now. God, more than simply knowing our future, God is planned the details of every day in our life. It all comes under his hand. So it's more than just reading God being able to know your future and even numbering the days, which he does. It's actually determining what takes place in each day. So all areas of life are covered, you can see. God's all over your life. Think of every dimension here. Past, present, future. Height, depth. Light, darkness, near, far, born, unborn, womb, tomb. uh, Thought, deed. Knows all, sees all, plans all. What did Jesus say? Not an insignificant sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the will of my Father in heaven. He's got it all covered. Not a hair is missed on God's count. There are no loose ends, maybe a few split ends, but no loose ends. God's got it all covered. Wonderfully made, wonderfully known by a wonderful God. Now, you may be bypassed um, in the crowd, maybe too insignificant to rate a mention by those significant others in your life. Perhaps you'll never make it on the TV and in, and in the news, say, unlike Bruce, who every time I'm on the TV, I'm always watching Bruce. I don't know why Bruce Clark always is there. But it begs the question, you know, will we be satisfied in being known by God? How are you going with your midlife crisis? I had a midlife crisis at 33, 37, and then a sustained one from ages 40 to 50. I pretty much worked out it was about ego, but it's partly about the search of significance, you know, and that gnawing sense of failure that follows you. Uh, what I've noticed is the younger generation seemed to get it. My, one of my daughters had, had a midlife crisis, and she was 25. <laughs> my goodness, what a cursed gener- generation. But however old you are, it is about the search for significance. We're, we're forever kind of bumping into that longing. And, and I guess I want to say it, it's not what you do that defines you. It's not even who you are that defines you. It's who knows you that defines you. You're known by the creator of the universe personally and you matter to him. Now, at one level, this knowledge ought to be a little bit scary. In fact, David is aware of those who are outside the circle of faith who think they can blaspheme God and get away with it and it inspires within him a righteous jealousy. Look at verse 19. If only God, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. And you think, oh my goodness, this was such a nice psalm. What happened? (laughs) David is furious. And it is a righteous jealousy that he has against those who are blaspheming the name of God. They they speak with God with evil intent. And, and David hates them. Wow. So Now you think, okay, we've got to now start to think about how we apply this. It seems to jar some other teaching. Is he right? Is he sinning at this point? Yeah, I, I saw an interview with Oprah Winfrey when she was asked about her spirituality. And she said at the age of 27, she was going to her Baptist church when the preacher was preaching on a part of the Bible, she said, where he talked about how God knew everything was everywhere, and she said, I really liked it, it was a beautiful talk. And then he started talking about how God was jealous for his honor and glory. And she said, I I really started getting put off. And she said, that was the day 
I made a decision where she said I left mainstream Christianity. Mm. Oprah didn't like that point. That the, and clearly, he was preaching from Psalm 139. The way she described it, she remembered it well enough to actually record the very structure of Psalm 139. And I thought, Oprah, how ironic. I said, I think to myself, you're jealous for your glory and honour. If someone misrepresents you, I'm sure you'll get a, a truckload of lawyers to start to litigate. Why would you want God to be treated any differently from the way you're treated? That's exactly, we're jealous for our honour. Why do we treat God so differently for how we want to be treated ourselves? Now, to be fair, to be fair, you read this, the language of this psalm is still hard to hear. In fact, let's crank it up a bit, verse 21. Or rather, let David crank it up a bit. If it wasn't bad before, he says, Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. And you think, well, if it's good enough for David, it's good enough for me. Now, at one level, we've got to think very hard now about, about how to apply, especially Old Testament and Old Testament Psalms to ourselves. Too easily. We, you notice I've just been going straight from God to us because we've been dealing with the character of God. But now we, we think, okay, I've got to more consciously run this through the lens of the, of, of the theology of the Bible. David speaks from a very different theological time zone to us, doesn't he? He was a member of the Old Covenant where the enemies of God were the enemies of Israel often and the enemies of Israel's Messiah, and that was David. He was the anointed one. But as New Covenant members, we live this side of the cross of Christ, where we're told that the enemies are the enemies of the power of sin and Satan and the patterns of this world. In fact, we're told that Christ died for us while we're all enemies, and that we're actually instructed by Jesus to love the enemy and bless those who persecute and to hate sin. So how do we put all that together? I think the way we do it is it's David is speaking here as the Messiah and Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this part of the psalm in particular. And as the Messiah, Jesus will hate those who will consistently keep on rejecting him and his father. That it is Christ and not us who will hate God's enemies all the way to hell if they don't repent. Because if God is inescapable to his people, you can be guaranteed he's inescapable to his enemies. And if you find yourself, friends, right now thinking, am I on the wrong side of Jesus, then get on his right side by simply trusting and obeying him, surrendering to him once and for all. Let me, pick, let me give to you a, a biblical picture of that final day judgment in Revelation 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave, every free man, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, they call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That if you find yourself on the wrong side of Jesus, you will actually on that day call, you would prefer to have a thousand tons of granite fall on you than to meet Jesus in his purity and in his wrath. And this is the stuff the nightmares are made of. And I tell you, meeting God unforgiven is a nightmare that will never end. So I beg you, if, you, if you've not yet come to Jesus, it's not a question of scaring you, it's just a question of telling you how the story's going to play out. Reality bites. This is reality. A day is coming when God will hold us accountable. The wrong side of Jesus means 
your sins will be held, account, uh, will be held account, uh, against you. The right side of Jesus, and they will no longer be counted against you. But Psalm 139 is actually written for believers, firstly. For us in Christ, it's a word of comfort. That's why we want you who are not in Christ to join us and to enjoy this comfort and let it produce praise and wonder and yes, even confession. Look at verse 23. Because David says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So David calls on God to search him out. A bit like when I finished writing this talk, I invited the spelling checker and the grammar checker to go through the talk and pick up anything that's wrong. Bring it to the surface. I like to call them typing errors rather than spelling errors, but nevertheless, whatever they are, bring it to the light. Because David is saying, I don't want to pretend with you, God. You know me better than I know me, and I want to know me like you know me. I don't want to pretend anymore with you. Friends, can I say, if you follow the Lord Jesus, make it your aim to live with a clear conscience. Examine afresh every corner of your life. Bring it under the light of God's word. What is that one thing that others often pick about your character that they wish you would change? And what kind of effort have you made to changing it? Not the least owning it. What is it, the one thing that whenever Bruce or one of the preachers here preaches, that's that unrepented air of your life just keeps coming up and then you put it down. It comes up, you keep putting down and you keep suppressing it. It's just time to come clean. It's, quite, it's very liberating, let me tell you. But if you're in Christ and you have confessed and repented and you've, you've tried to walk a life of integrity but the, your conscience weighs heavy on you because of things you've done in the past and you can't seem to let them go and they dog your life and they line your past and, and you feel... Uh, disproportionately weighted by you feel more condemned than the scriptures are wanting you there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus but you know that that sin keeps haunting you you've got a sensitive conscience then today God is telling you this if you're in Christ Jesus God is saying you know when I made you I knew you were going to commit those sins in fact I chose you before the foundation of the world knowing you were going to commit those sins in fact I was there watching you commit those sins when you broke my heart but I need you to know this. I want you to know this. That I took those sins and I stapled them to the body of my dear son, left there at the cross, never to be used ever against you on the day of judgment, so you don't ever have to fear that day. Because the thing is, God is saying to you is, the God who knows everything about everyone says, for those of you who follow me and my dear son, Jesus is saying, there's one thing I don't know. You know what that is? Your sin. Remember the great promise in Jeremiah 31? This is the irony. I will remember your sins. No more. I'll remember you, but not your sins. I'll remember your good works done in Christ Jesus, but I won't remember your sins. Is that not good news? That is fantastic news. Well, I don't know about you, but I want to praise God. Let's do it. Oh, Heavenly Father. As we pause for a moment, as we reflect on your character, your omniscience, all-knowing, ever-present, nothing escapes your attention. 
as we consider where we are inside the circle of faith, outside the circle of faith. We come to you, Heavenly Father, and we declare how precious to us are your thoughts, O God. You know everything. You are everywhere. You are inescapable. All praise to you, Lord God, for we stand in awe of you. Help us who are in Christ to live with clear consciences. May we be quick to confess to you and to others. Search us out. Stop us from pretending, suppressing. Thank you for the promise, the precious promise that you will remember our sin no more. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.